This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. And this week we'll start off reading from the New York Jewish Week. The first article, Meet the Closeted Liberal Jews Voting for Trump, by Hannah Dreyfus. When Benita Nathan Sussman, a 67-year-old conservative Jew living in Staten Island, announced she would be voting for President Donald Trump this November, her Facebook friends said they would hold a virtual shiva for her. Oh my gosh, have I lost friends, said Nathan Sussman, speaking out to me on the phone early this week about her decision to come out of the closet as a Trump supporter. I've been called a racist, a homophobe, anything you can name under the sun, she said. If you know me, she continued, you know those things aren't true. But people who I've had relationships with for over 20 years don't want anything to do with me anymore. And, according to Nathan Sussman, she is not alone. Lots of liberal Jews have crossed over the line, she told me, referring to friends and contacts within her social network who have quietly pledged allegiance to the sitting president. They whisper about it. They're afraid to lose jobs, friends, family members. If you support Trump in liberal Jewish circles, you become a pariah. You simply can't say you're a pro-Trump supporter without inviting some kind of a backlash. The response underlines the uniquely divisive nature of the 2020 presidential election. While the Democrat, uh, Democratic-Republican split among Jews has held relatively steady over the past few presidential election cycles, the latest poll number, uh, the latest poll gives former Vice President Joe Biden a 75-22 advantage over Trump, the Trump era has brought out unusual passions. In orthodox circles, where Trump is highly favored, Biden voters can feel personally and professionally adrift from their communities. In liberal and non-Orthodox Jewish circles, voicing support for Trump is often treated akin to heresy. Another, uh, other Trump supporters interviewed for this article declined to use their names for fear of personal and professional backlash. All live in New York, identify with non-Orthodox Jewish denominations, consider themselves personally liberal, and say they are voting for Trump. They fear inciting a family civil war, putting one's current living arrangement in peril, becoming estranged from a daughter, losing a job or incurring uh, damage to a personal business, and becoming permanently exiled from their synagogue or intimate social circles. I feel discriminated against, agreed Barbara Braun, a 71-year-old philanthropist and activist from the East End of Long Island. Braun runs a philanthropic family foundation, serves as a trustee at her pluralistic Long Island synagogue, as well as at the Nature Conservancy. She gives generously to Jewish federations and nonprofits that support Israel, and has been active in her local community efforts to end domestic abuse and advocate for environmental protections. She does not see her liberal values in conflict with her support of the president, she said. I find it objectionable that people assume there is a conflict. There's a tremendous amount of preconceived notions about what a liberal Jewish person is supposed to think and feel. We live liberal values. We live tzedakah, she stressed. I can't understand how all that has been called into question over this election. We're certainly liberal people, and we certainly support President Trump, chimed in Browner's husband, Mitchell Mirren. In New York, our vote might be symbolic. 
Biden will win New York, just like the sun will come up tomorrow, but we're going to do our part and vote. Those interviewed for this article cited a number of familiar themes in describing their support for Trump, the peace agreements between Israel and Gulf states brokered by the administration, anti-Semitism on the left, support for Trump's decision to scuttle the Iran deal, and anxiety over the national civil unrest following the deaths of George Floyd and other black people in encounters with the police, which included calls by some to defund the police. That the president's daughter, Ivanka Trump, and her husband, Jared Kushner, are Jewish, came up in more than one conversation. Agitated divides between friends, family, and community members with regard to politics are not new. What is new, according to researchers, is the othering of people with divergent views. What used to happen was there were lots of conservatives in the Democratic Party and lots of liberals in the Republican Party. What we have now is an alignment of social identities that correspond to our political identities in a way that we've never seen before. Eli J. Finkel, a psychology professor at Northwestern University and lead author of a new science paper on polarization, told Scientific American. In the paper, we talk about a political polarization, uh, political polarization as a kind of mega identity that encompasses a whole bunch of other identities, so that African American people and non heterosexual people are overwhelmingly in the Democratic Party, said Finkel. You have this alignment in a way that the two sides feel increasingly different from one another. Liberal Jews tend to feel a strong identity with the Democratic Party, a trend that only increased after a shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh in October 2008, which left 11 dead, was tied to xenophobic rhetoric from the Trump administration. Orthodox Jews are increasingly associated with the GOP, uh, associating the GOP with support for Israel and conservative social issues. Things are polarized like never before, agreed a 58-year-old reformed Jewish lay leader and businessman from Riverdale who plans to vote for Trump. He requested anonymity for fear of personal and professional blowback. In addition to his role as past president and current chairman of his reformed Jewish synagogue, he is an active Jewish philanthropist and previous board member of the UJA Federation of New York. Unfortunately, the state of play right now is such that if you identify yourself as a conservative, you will be construed as a racist and a homophobe, and 11 other terrible things he said. The rate of change towards vilifying conservative viewpoints among progressive Jewish circles has been accelerating at an alarming rate over the last couple of years. The slope of the curve is so steep these days it drives people away from talking, he said. In his life as a temple officer and supporter of Jewish nonprofits, he has sought to keep politics out of every decision he makes. Still, today he does not trust that these efforts would be regarded and considered separate from his political positions. It's cancel culture in our own community, he said. Somehow or other, left-wing ideas have become inextricably linked to moral rightness, the corollary being anything else is stupid, bigoted, or cruel. Nathan Sussman said her support for Trump is driven by her Israeli views. I'm a lifelong Democrat. I voted for Obama both times and went to both of his inaugurations, she said, but I switched my head to the Republicans because I'm very pro-Israel. 
She's described feeling betrayed by the Obama administration after the United States broke with past practice in late 2016 and allowed the UN Security Council to condemn Israeli settlements in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. In Staten Island, Nathan Sussman is volunteering as a Jewish advisor to Republican candidate Nicole Maliotakis, who is running against incumbent Democrat Max Rose for New York's 11th Congressional District. The race appears to be one of the few truly tight congressional races nationwide, according to recent polls. Maliotakis is a longtime member of the state assembly who lost a bid for mayor in 2017. I promise you I'm still registered as a Democrat, said Nathan Sussman with an ironic laugh. Go ahead, look me up. And next from the New York Jewish Week, meet a New York Orthodox rabbi voting for Biden, also by Hannah Dreyfus. Rabbi Barry Kornblau, the rabbi of the Young Israel of Hollis Hills in Queens and a previous staff member at the Rabbinical Council of America, will not forget the moment he lost trust in the Trump, uh, the Trump campaign. In 2017, I was sitting in the Indian Treaty Room near the White House, listening to Sebastian Gorka, recalled Rabbi Kornblau, 55, referring to President Donald Trump's former, uh, former deputy assistant. At the time, Kornblau was taking part in a lobbying mission on behalf of the Orthodox Union, the largest Orthodox umbrella. While he does not remember exactly what Gorka was speaking about, he remembered the combination of nationalist fanaticism and charisma with which the former Trump staffer spoke. I was appalled that an individual like this was part of the administration of the President of the United States, said Rabbi Kornblau. At that moment, I decided I would not engage with this administration. I realized we can't treat this like normal times. Rabbi Kornblau has kept his word. Over the last four years, he has quietly and persistently spoken against Trump's anti-immigrant rhetoric and the encouragement given to white supremacist groups by the president and his circle. Last week, the rabbi published an opinion article in the New Jersey Jewish News, uh, uh, the New Jersey Jewish Link, titled Why Orthodox Jews Must Vote for Joe Biden. In the lengthy article, he cites Trump's response to the COVID pandemic, saying Trump turned public health into a partisan issue, called a world-renowned infectious disease expert an idiot, and reduced confidence in a vaccine even before it's been tested. He also cited Trump's character, saying the president's unparalleled greed, hedonistic lifestyle, narcissism, dishonesty, abusive behavior, misogyny, and corruption disgraced the office once held by Washington and Lincoln. The letter cites similar criticism of the president by Rabbi Moshe Lichtenstein, an influential modern Orthodox rabbi who lives in Israel. Kornblau is bucking well-documented trends in the Orthodox Jewish community. According to a survey conducted by the Haredi Orthodox Ami magazine, 83% of Orthodox Jews said they will vote for Trump, compared to just 13% who said they'd support the Democratic Party's nominee, Joe Biden. In an American Jewish Community survey released October 19th, Trump is preferred by 74% of Orthodox. That's a mirror of the 75% of all Jews who support former Vice President Joe Biden and the 22% who favor the incumbent. Orthodox voters tend to vote hawkishly on Israel 
and appreciate Trump's decision to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem and scuttle the Iran nuclear deal. Trump's ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, is himself a member of Long Island's Orthodox community and a prominent supporter of the settlements. Orthodox voters also tend to be conservative on social issues like public funding for private schools and agree with the law and order rhetoric that Trump has directed at big cities where Orthodox communities tend to cluster. The coronavirus pandemic, which has hit their communities hard, has also pushed Orthodox voters, especially from the insular Haredi camp, into Trump's arms. This week, the president tweeted his thanks for 13 prominent Haredi Orthodox rabbis who, back in June, praised Trump for demanding that houses of worship remain open despite the spread of COVID-19. Protests in Orthodox Brooklyn against state and city pandemic restrictions have turned into pro-Trump rallies. But according to Rabbi Kornblau, the numbers showing Orthodox support of Trump can be misleading. He said he personally knows of many Orthodox leaders, including prominent rabbis who are deeply critical and fearful of Trump, but are unable to voice their opinions because of communal responsibilities and institutional affiliations. The notable silence from centrist Orthodox leaders supporting Biden, made only more dramatic by the raucous support of Trump on the right, points to a fundamental conundrum of the modern-day rabbinate, he said. Ultimately, you're always employed by a community or an institution, and unless you're willing to risk your job or at best receive tremendous flack, your hands are tied, he said. The potential to alienate members of your own community is too pronounced for most pulpit rabbis to speak out, he said. I think that most pro-Biden Orthodox rabbis are doing the right thing by being quiet because their primary duty is to their community, he said. The silent rabbis aren't only avoiding problems, they're doing an affirmative good because their job is to foster shalom, communal harmony. The gap between a leader and his flock can't be too large or the flock won't follow and the leader won't lead. Orthodox communities also have a way of enforcing conformity. Rabbi Kornblau recalled receiving a letter from one Orthodox young woman who said that her matchmaking prospects have wilted because of her democratic politics. Others have written to him describing feeling personally and religiously ostracized by the Orthodox world's seeming, uh, seemingly monolithic pro-Trump stance. It's hard to be constantly told you're not a from Jew if you don't support Trump, quoted Rabbi Kornblau from one message he had received after publishing his op-ed. It would be much easier to leave the from world. When the majority of community leaders are describing Torah values and Republican political stances together, it makes people, especially young people, wonder how they can stay a part of a community like that, he said. They're saying, if we are orthodox, if these are orthodox values, it would make more sense not to be orthodox. We are and will pay a high price for the gross politicalization of communal life. Can you imagine, he continued, almost as though speaking to himself, we've reached a point where people are questioning their own religious identity because they don't agree with the President of the United States. Is this really where we are? Rabbi Kornblau, who had been reticent to speak to the press, gave an interview to the Jewish Star in March 2019, criticizing the president of the National Council of Young Israel, an umbrella organization for his modern Orthodox movement, supporting Otzma Yehudit, a far-right anti-Arab party in Israel. 
He was among a small but vocal group of young Israel rabbis who were critical of the national organization's right-wing advocacy. The Otzma Yehudit statement was the final hammer blow, the straw that broke the camel's back, told the interviewer. National Council of Young Israel's president, Farley Weiss, later issued a clarification saying that the statement of support for the party represented his own personal views and that of many on our board, but may not reflect the view of all of Young Israel's rabbis. Asked why he has been increasingly vocal in the weeks before the election, Rabbi Kornblau cites tradition. In a place where there are no men strive to be a man, he responded, quoting a famous Mishnaic aphorism by the rabbinic sage Hillel. The response to his article calling for Orthodox Jews to vote for Biden has been overwhelming, said Kornblau. He has been contacted by countless Orthodox Jews whose personal lives have been damaged because they do not support Trump. Our community will pay a steep price for this, no matter who wins. And next from the New York Jewish Week, from the editor's desk, what the Shema tells us about moral leadership. The centerpiece of Jewish prayer is a warning that actions have consequences, by Andrew Silo Carroll. I've always felt we recite the Shema three times a day as a reminder that actions have consequences. After the famous declaration of God's singularity, the Shema tells us that if we obey God's commandments, God will grant us rain for our crops and grass for our cattle. If not, if we serve other gods, the sky will dry up and the ground will be infertile. I'm not a farmer, and I am skeptical of the theological certainty of reward and punishment. I join those who regard the passage as a metaphor for moral ecology. We have been shown what it means to act justly, consume wisely, and treat our fellow creatures with dignity, which are the goals of any moral code. If we don't, there are consequences. Our society will rot, our health and livelihoods will suffer, our relationships will sour, nature itself will turn on us. The most maddening thing about the Trump era is the lack of consequences. Trump has violated nearly every norm of American political leadership and invented a few violations the Founding Fathers may never even have thought of. He has personally and coarsely insulted his perceived enemies, used his high office for personal gain, and lied compulsively and unapologetically as no other president has ever done. He has turned the Justice Department into a personal law firm in ways that would have made Nixon blush or green with envy. He has surgically cleaved this country by not even trying to pretend that he is the president of those who didn't vote for him. He has emboldened white supremacists and conspiracy theorists because of their perceived loyalty to him. He has mounted a concerted attack on our voting system because he fears he will not be re-elected. And rejecting science, he continues to downplay a deadly pandemic in the face of an unassailable, of unassailable evidence that is getting worse. I should say there appears to have been a lack of consequences for Trump. He has escaped impeachment. Republican support for him seems unshakable. Once bitter critics have become toadies. His base remains unfazed. The abnormal has become the norm. On a truly global scale, however, the providential logic of the Shema seems to have been vindicated. The obvious example is climate change. Although Trump is hardly alone in ignoring the warning signs, he does lead a superpower that could try and restore balance to a global economy that is endangering life on the planet. 
The consequences of indifference to a warming planet are more than metaphorical. The fires, the floods, the droughts, the looming extinctions, and the human suffering are very real, if not biblical. The moral logic of the Torah suggests that if individuals, and especially leaders, act unjustly, then society will pay the price. Sure enough, Trump's assaults on science and the rule of law have discredited governmental institutions in the eyes of the citizenry. His supporters don't trust the deep state. His critics think once-trusted government institutions have become hopelessly politicized. Similarly, Toa reminds us that decency, gener uh, decency generates decency and that the reward for sin is sin in Ethics of the Fathers. Trump's disdain for the truth has turned us into a nation of cynics, fracturing consensus and undermining the very notion of common sense. Who knew that by embracing rumor and conspiracy theories, the President of the United States could poison public discourse, perhaps irreparably? Who knew that his bullying and vindictiveness would make the country angrier, nastier, more polarized? Anyone with a Twitter feed, for starters. I could go on. Trump is a controlled experiment in how bad faith actions and erratic leadership can leave a society in shambles. And if you doubt that, consider the COVID-19 crisis. Let's grant Trump the consolation that this pandemic was going to be bad no matter who was in charge. But can you imagine any recent president or presidential candidate who would have used a deadly, demoralizing plague as a tool for dividing blue state from red? Who would have turned simple public health precautions into political loyalty tests? Who would have spurned their own experts as idiots and disasters? And, this is the key, would have offered no comprehensive plan or cogent sense of national purpose after eight months and 220,000 deaths. The Shema is a daily reminder of the human condition. We have been given a rule book for just, sustainable living so that you and your children may endure. There are various versions of this rule book, but over the past century, we seemed as a species to be moving toward a consensus that saw public health, human rights, and increasing equality as a goal of functioning societies and signs of a healthy planet. We ignore the lessons of moral ecology at our own peril, and that peril is now. And now we'll head over to JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Stephen Miller is reportedly readying immigration orders for a second Trump term. He also advanced a QAnon-esque claim about Joe Biden by Felissa Kramer and Ben Sales. Stephen Miller, the senior advisor to Donald Trump, is reportedly preparing for a possible second Trump term by readying executive orders that would further curb immigration to the United States. On a briefing call with reporters Wednesday about border policy, Miller also baselessly claimed that a Joe Biden administration would lead to a sharp increase in child smuggling in an allegation that closely echoes the QAnon conspiracy theory that is shaping contemporary politics. The false anti-Semitic conspiracy theory claims a democratic satanic cabal abuses children, harvests their blood, and is plotting to take down Donald Trump. As social media platforms have banned QAnon content, its millions of followers have switched to more subtle messaging about opposing pedophilia 
using hashtags such as Save the Children. Miller said Biden would incentivize child smuggling and child trafficking on an epic global scale, a CNN reporter who was on the call reported on Twitter. Other news outlets, including the liberal Talking Points Memo and the right-wing Washington Times, reported the comments. A recent poll by YouGov found that half of Trump supporters believe in QAnon core tenets, including that top Democrats are involved in elite child sex trafficking rings. A handful of Republican candidates have endorsed the theory, and Trump has declined to condemn it, even as other Republican leaders have. On Wednesday, Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt wrote an open letter to the leaders of the House of Representatives asking them to exclude QAnon followers from their party caucuses and to decline to seat them on House committees. While the letter was addressed to both parties, the theory is explicitly pro-Trump and no Democrats have been associated with it. The ADL has also produced materials criticizing some of the immigration policies that Miller, who is Jewish, has devised and implemented while working in the Trump White House. Miller helped design the Trump administration's most controversial immigration policies, including the decision to separate parents and children at the border. Miller falsely claimed on the call Wednesday that this administration kept families together, According to CNN, in fact, thousands of children and their parents were separated at the border, and the parents of 465 children cannot be found. The Guardian reported Wednesday that Miller has drafted executive orders for Trump to issue if he wins a second term that would further reduce the number of people who are able to enter or remain in the United States. The orders include what one would uh, that one. Uh, the orders include one that would slash refugee immigration to zero. The administration this week set a cap of 15,000 refugees for the United States in 2021, a record low that drew condemnation from Jewish advocacy groups that say admitting refugees is a moral burden. Biden has promised to raise the cap on refugee admissions and on Thursday pledged to create a task force to reunite families that were separated at the border. And next from JTA, a teacher made his students debate Hitler's final solution. What happened next was incredible, by Lior Zaltzman. On January 20, 1942, 15 high-ranking officials from the Nazi party and the German government got together in a, in a villa in Wannsee, a leafy suburb of Berlin. They were there to discuss the implementation of the final solution of the Jewish question, the deportation and eventual extermination of Europe's six million Jews. The event was not a debate nor a chance for introspection. There were no brave moments of resistance. Instead, it was a group of Nazis getting together in one room and callously discussing the systematic murder of Jews. 75 years later, in 2017, in the town of Oswego, New York, during a college-level English class at the Center for Instruction, Technology, and Innovation, a teacher asked his students to imagine being one of these Nazis. In a jaw-dropping fashion, he asked his students to argue for or against the final solution. Two of the students in that class, which was overwhelmingly white and not Jewish, spoke out and pointed out the tastelessness of the assignment. 
Their names were Archer, Shirtliff, and Jordan April. As Shirtliff told Oswego County News Now, he understood where the assignment was coming from, but he found it unacceptable. You can play the devil's advocate, he said, but you can't be the devil. The teacher brushed off the student's criticism, and eventually the school administration offered them an alternative assignment, but didn't cancel the first one. Even the New York Education Commissioner, Mary Ellen Alaya, when first asked about it, claimed that it was an exercise in critical thinking. But Shortliff and April weren't having it. They took their fight to the media and to the Anti-Defamation League, and eventually they won. Leah agreed to make sure the assignment was never given again in New York State. Coincidentally, as this story broke, Milwaukee-based author Lisa Weimer was on her way to Oswego, heading to a bookstore to give a talk about her book, Hello. As she sat in her car waiting out a downpour, she read the story of these two brave teens, which was posted to Facebook by her aunt. The Jewish mother of two felt like she had to meet them. Incredibly, as she walked into the venue for her reading, she saw a face she recognized, Jordan April. She worked at the bookstore. That night, Weimer spoke to both teens on the phone. Astounded by their tenacity and bravery, she decided their story had to be put to paper. I knew immediately that I was going to fictionalize this story, she told JTA by email. From the start, this book wasn't meant to be about the real teens, but a broad view of the impact an assignment like this has on students, a class, a school, a community, and even the world. The result is the assignment, which was published this summer by Delacorte Press. It is a riveting, emotional read and an urgent one. It tells the story of two teens, Cade and Logan, who stand up against a familiar assignment, uh, a similar assignment, in a school that is all-white and non-Jewish, a reflection of the schools the real teens attended, and one that I visited in the area, Weimer explains. It's a page-turner that explores the points of view of Cade, Logan, and the other students in the class. The book demonstrates how teachers can inadvertently water the already existing seeds of intolerance in students' hearts, Thanks to assignments like this one and, as Weimer mentions in the book's acknowledgments, similar ones across the country. At a time when anti-Semitism and intolerance are rising in this country, when white supremacist organizations and conspiracy theorists are receiving encouragement from those in high office, the assignment is a reminder of the responsibility we all have to call out injustice wherever we see it. This must-read book is also a tale about identity, love, and loyalty. The way the families of these fictional teens stand behind them shows how much we can accomplish by encouraging our kids to fight for what's right, even if it comes at a personal cost. I spoke to Weimer about her Jewish identity influence about how her Jewish identity influenced the writing of the book, how her 20 plus years of teaching experience helped shape it, and what she hopes readers will take from it. How did your experience growing up Jewish in non-Jewish spaces influence writing this book? Writing this novel brought back memories of anti-Semitic incidents I experienced in my youth. Some took place out of ignorance and some from deep-seated beliefs. I drew upon those emotions, the fear, feeling like an outsider in my own school and community, and used them as motivation to show the impact of anti-Semitism and all forms of hate on society. There's empathy in this book for Mr. Bartley, the teacher who created this ill-conceived assignment. 
Why did you feel it was important to show his perspective? Before I wrote one word, it was critical for me to understand Mr. Bartley and his motivations for giving his students this assignment. I decided to challenge myself, imagining him as a favorite teacher. But then I had to ask myself how a beloved teacher could give an assignment that crossed a moral line. I drew upon my educational background, digging deep to figure out his whys. In similar situations, educators have often been villainized in the media and online. We rarely get background on these teachers. Based on the comments I read, people make quick judgments that often were damaging and damning. I saw Mr. Bartley's actions as misguided and thoughtless. He had no nefarious motivations. For me, portraying him as a multidimensional and authentic individual was critical. How is writing and researching this story? How has uh, writing and researching this story changed your own perspective as an educator? Good teachers make mistakes. I am much more aware of the lasting impact these assignments have as well as the challenging dynamics they cause in and outside the classroom. It's made me realize how critical it is for us to foster educational environments where upstanders are respected and welcomed. We must encourage students to speak up against injustice and support their actions instead of feeling threatened by them and attempting to suppress their voices. You talk at the end of the book about embracing your Jewish identity and also sometimes want to hide it in order to protect yourself. That's such a common struggle for Jews in the diaspora. As a mom, how did you reconcile fostering Jewish pride in your kids while also trying to keep them safe? Creating a Jewish life in and outside our home for our children was very important to my husband and me. We made decisions early on that weren't easy. It was a conscious decision to keep kosher and Shabbat and to build a love for Judaism within our home. The more we became involved in Jewish life, the more we saw how those experiences created joy, stability, pride, a strong sense of identity and community for our sons. But with all the positives, anti-Semitism continues to be a thick, heavy blanket that has weighed on us. One particular incident was frightening. Once, when we were walking to our synagogue on Yom Kippur with our rabbi and Rebetzin, a car slowed. The passenger window rolled down, a soda can was thrown, and it exploded by us. As the car squealed away, one of the men inside yelled, Heil Hitler. It left a mark. For us, as parents, the answer was to strengthen our community and to make sure that the best safety measures were in place. We didn't shy away from having difficult conversations with our boys and answering their questions. At the same time, we made absolutely certain to fill our home with a love of Judaism. As Dennis Prager and Joseph Tolushkin explained in Why the Jews, the Reason for Anti-Semitism, learning and strengthening our Jewish identity are critical and powerful tools to combating hate. Hate can't win. It can never win. I love that this book is about more than just fighting anti-Semitism. It is about discrimination, racism, and intolerance of any kind. Why was that important to you? While I was researching this novel, I had conversations with several professors and rabbis about how the Nazis embraced Darwin's concept of survival of the fittest, taking it to an extreme to create an Aryan race. What I've learned through my Jewish studies is that we believe in the complete opposite. We are to cherish and value every human being and our uniqueness. It's our responsibility to take care of and protect those who may be in need of protection. Everyone possesses strengths and weaknesses. 
it's part of being human, so the emphasis must be on how every person has the ability to bring value and goodness into this world. No one is superior or inferior. There's a line from Logan's dad that really struck me. A lot of people believe in things and stand back and do nothing. We're at a time where our beliefs are being tested and our actions are so needed. How do we remain motivated and keep ourselves accountable? There is a concept in Judaism that when we see something transpire, it was meant for us and we need to determine the reason. Is it an opportunity for us to learn? Is it a reflection to show an area needed for growth? Or perhaps it's a call to action. Each one of us can take into account this concept and determine what it means for us. As in the assignment, not everyone is going to feel comfortable about what Cade and Logan did. I have secondary characters who make different choices to make a difference. The point is that all of us have the power to speak up in our own way. Every day is an opportunity to start fresh. If you encounter an injustice, ask yourself, why did I see this and not someone else? If I do nothing, could I live with it? Doing the right thing isn't always the easy choice, but it's the only way to change the world. And next from JTA. In a speech about the dangers of bigotry at a memorial for the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, Bernie Sanders included Israel in a list of countries where authoritarianism is rising. Sanders, the Democratic Socialist Vermont Senator, was the keynote speaker at a virtual memorial event hosted by Ben the Ark, a progressive Jewish advocacy group. The event, held a day after the two-year anniversary of the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, in which 11 Jews were killed, centered on warning of the dangerous effects of white supremacy and xenophobia. Sanders spoke about how relatives of his were murdered in the Holocaust and how he understands the threat posed when white supremacists gain power. He then spoke about how white supremacy targets Jews and all minorities and how it poses a threat to liberal democracy. He then segued to speaking about how illiberalism and authoritarianism were on the rise around the world, including in Israel. They don't just hate Jews, he said, of white supremacists. They hate the idea of multiracial democracy. They hate the idea of political equality. They hate immigrants, people of color, LGBTQ people, women, and anyone else who stands in the way of their bigotry and racist ideology. All over the world, in Russia, in India, in Brazil, in Hungary, in Israel, and elsewhere, we see this rise of a divisive and destructive form of politics. We see intolerant authoritarianism, uh, authoritarian political leaders attacking the very foundations of democratic societies. Sanders was frequently critical of Netanyahu while he was running for president earlier this year. Critics in Israel and abroad have also called out Netanyahu's perceived disregard for democratic norms, including his remaining in office while on trial for corruption and legislation that critics say degrades the status of Israel's Arab minority. An ongoing protest movement in Israel is also calling for Netanyahu's resignation due to his handling of the coronavirus pandemic, which has spiked in Israel, and his corruption trial. In successive election campaigns last year, Netanyahu trumpeted his relationships with authoritarian leaders like Russia's Vladimir Putin and China's Xi Jinping as a selling point.
Netanyahu and his defenders claim that the corruption charges are spurious and that his relationships with world leaders bolster Israel's international standings. He has likewise defended his response to the pandemic as a series of difficult but necessary choices. Later on the Bend the Ark call, Sanders said he was a proud member of the tradition of Jewish social justice and called on listeners to dedicate ourselves to build a country that embodies the values of equality, democracy, and dignity for all people. Jeremy Corbyn, who was suspended from Britain's Labour Party this week for downplaying its anti-Semitism problem, could be kicked out of the party altogether, his successor said. In an interview Friday, Keir Starmer, who succeeded Corbyn as party chief in April, responded to the dramatic fallout from a report this week by the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which found that Labour had violated anti-discrimination laws under Corbyn by mishandling complaints and committing unlawful harassment of Jews by two party agents. The report, published Thursday, was the first time that a mainstream party was the focus of an investigation by the government's racism watchdog, whose findings are binding. Corbyn, a far-left politician who has been accused by the current and previous chief rabbis of Britain of being personally anti-Semitic, responded to the report reiterating his objection to anti-Semitism but added that the problem has been dramatically overstated for political reasons. Starmer responded by suspending Corbyn pending a party review. The review, Starmer told Radio 4, could result in the first-ever expulsion of a former party leader from its ranks. Yes, people have been expelled from the Labour Party, Starmer said in response to a question about whether Corbyn could be permanently removed. Of the 827 anti-Semitism cases investigated since April, about a third have resulted in expulsion from the party, he said. Corbyn has vowed to fight the possibility of expulsion, calling that move political, too. Online forums frequented by those who oppose to vaccinations are hotbeds of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, according to a new report from the British government. The 20-page report, titled From Anti-Vaxxers to Anti-Semitism, Conspiracy Theory in the COVID-19 Pandemic, was published in October, early October, by John Mann, Britain's independent independent advisor on anti-Semitism. The accusations that the pandemic is fake and that Jewish conspirators created the virus are the most dominant in anti-vaxxer communities, said the report, which is based on two months of monitoring more than 25 Facebook groups, as well as Twitter accounts and other social networks. Whilst the groups themselves are rarely established to spread anti-Semitism, they become a hotbed for anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, the report said. While the majority of anti-vaxxers are not openly anti-Semitic, the report said, their propensity to conspiracy theory reduces their resilience to anti-Semitic beliefs and attitudes. The problem, the report said, has been growing since the start of the pandemic. And next from JTA, a small but growing number of Orthodox rabbis are officiating same-sex weddings by Joseph and Dolston. As a teen, Nadiv Shorer felt a deep sense of grief when attending his older siblings' weddings. After he realized he was attracted to men, he thought there was no way for him to build a life in the modern Orthodox community where he had been repeatedly told there was no space for gay people. 
I remember realizing I'm never going to have this, he recalled, and it was very difficult for me. Yet earlier this year, Shore stood with his now husband, Ariel Mary, under the chuppah in a ceremony that didn't look too different from the ones his brothers and sisters had. Officiating at the ceremony was Rabbi Avram Blotek, an Orthodox rabbi who leads an outreach organization for young Jewish professionals in New York. It was Mlotek's first time performing a same-sex wedding. If the couple is choosing to live Jewish lives, build a Jewish home, and raise Jewish children, our traditional rabbinate must seize the opportunity to welcome and work with these families at their most precious life cycle moments, Mlotek wrote last year in announcing his decision to perform same-sex weddings. If we don't, we risk further alienation and falling into an abyss of religious irrelevance by denying these couples their rightful place of belonging. Mlotek is part of a growing cadre of Orthodox rabbis who are breaking ranks by performing wedding ceremonies that until recently had been unthinkable in the Orthodox Jewish world. Jewish Telegraphic Agency was able to identify 10 Orthodox ordained rabbis who have performed or said they were open to officiating religious wedding ceremonies for same-sex couples. Though small, that number represents a a remarkable change in the Orthodox community, which is defined by its strict adherence to religious law and in which a decade ago it was impossible to find a single rabbi willing to do so. I think for most Orthodox rabbis, the prohibition in the Bible and in subsequent halachic works was somewhat intractable, said Jonathan Sarna, a professor of American Jewish history at Brandeis University, referring to the biblical prohibition on sex between men. But what we do see, which I think is very important, is a change of attitude. The rabbis identified by JTA include prominent figures like Rabbi Asher Lopatin, the former head of the liberal Orthodox rabbinical school Yeshivat Chovavei Torah, who said he would seriously favorably consider it if asked to perform a same-sex wedding. The Judaism that I believe in, that I think God gave us, is one that cares for people and addresses their needs and is meaningful for them. So Jewish law and Jewish tradition needs to address this, said Lopatin, who leads a modern Orthodox synagogue outside Detroit, as well as the Jewish Community Relations Council in Detroit. In addition to Mlotek and Lopatin, the other rabbis are Daniel Atwood, Ellie Friedman, Gabe Greenberg, Stephen Greenberg, Daniel Landis, Sarah Mulhern, Aaron Potek, and Shmuley Yanklowitz. Some of them were ordained at Yeshiva University, the modern Orthodox rabbinical school that recently rejected the formation of an LGBTQ student group. Others were ordained by Yeshivat Chovavei Torah, which was embroiled in controversy last year when it declined to ordain a gay student. That student, Atwood, was ordained by Landis instead, as was Mulhern, who had previously graduated from a non-denominational rabbinical school. Orthodox Judaism is defined by its traditional interpretation of Jewish law, which does not allow same-sex marriage or sexual relations between people of the same gender. Attitudes towards same-sex marriage and LGBTQ acceptance in general are similar in the more conservative Haredi Orthodox world, which maintains a strict separation from the secular world, but in the modern Orthodox community where a religious lifestyle is balanced with an embrace of the secular world, LGBTQ acceptance has accelerated. 
That has left some modern Orthodox ordained rabbis concluding that prohibitions such as the oft-cited passage from Leviticus that has traditionally been interpreted as calling gay male sex an abomination need to be reevaluated. I view that prohibition and set of related prohibitions as an area of Torah law that is in tension with other Torah values, including the value of all life and the value of saving a life. Knowing what we know now about suicide rates in the gay community, I think that's highly relevant, said Rabbi Gabe Greenberg, who officiated his first same-sex wedding last year. The number of Orthodox ordained rabbis performing same-sex weddings may be set to expand even further. Around 45 rabbis attended a series of sessions that started in 2018 to explore how a same-sex wedding might look in an Orthodox setting. The conversations were hosted through Torah Chaim, a progressive Orthodox rabbinic group led by Yanklowitz, who has not performed a same-sex wedding, but says he is very open to doing so. It's been an issue that has really had a lot of movement within the Jewish community and the Orthodox community. In the progressive Orthodox world, there's a lot of receptivity, Yanklowitz said. Though the Orthodox movement lags far behind other Jewish denominations, all of which allow same-sex weddings and queer rabbis, LGBTQ people are seeing more acceptance at a community level, especially in modern Orthodox synagogues, said Rabbi Zef Elef, an associate professor of Jewish history at Touro College who researches American Orthodox Judaism. Twenty years ago, when somebody came out of the closet, a man who wanted to marry a man or a woman who wanted to marry a woman, if they came to that decision, they also came to that decision they had to leave orthodoxy. Now, while they may never become president of their synagogues, at the same time they can make peace with their family lifestyle and finding outlets like certain orthodox schools and certain modern orthodox congregations, Elif said. Recently, Rabbi Benny Lau, a prominent Israeli Orthodox rabbi, released a statement that seemed to offer a path forward to same-sex couples looking to build their lives in the religious world. Though the rabbi did not offer a framework for a wedding ceremony, he said that the impulse to marry and have one's relationship publicly affirmed should not be ignored and that Judaism does not forbid gay couples from building families. And though no American Jewish Orthodox group has endorsed same-sex weddings, queer couples are finding support among friends and family. Is the modern Orthodox community ready for something like this? We had almost 300 people at our wedding, at least two-thirds of whom were from the Orthodox communities in Cleveland, New York, and Los Angeles. We know not everyone is this fortunate, but clearly some in the Orthodox community are ready for this said Jeremy Borison, who wed his husband in an Orthodox ceremony officiated by Rabbi Ellie Friedman earlier this year. For same-sex couples seeking to have an Orthodox wedding, one hurdle is how to navigate a ritual ceremony crafted for heterosexual couples. In a traditional Jewish wedding, two witnesses sign a ketubah, a marriage contract for the couple that outlines the husband's responsibilities to the wife. Then, in the betrothal ceremony, known as kiddushin, the groom acquires the bride by giving her a ring and reciting a formula. During the marriage ceremony, Nisuin, seven blessings are recited over the couple, including two that use language that refer specifically to a groom and bride. Some same-sex Orthodox couples choose to hew as closely as possible to that template. Barson and his husband, Michael Greenberg, wanted to stay as close to tradition as possible only altering the Hebrew text 
so that it referred to two grooms rather than groom and bride and using two ketubas rather than one, since the text is one-sided and talks about the husband's responsibilities to the wife. Others are relying on alternative models, feeling like the traditional wedding liturgy does not apply to same-sex couples. We wanted it to be a traditional Jewish wedding, and we also wanted to pay homage to our queer identities and queer culture. We didn't want to do the exact same things that we would at a heterosexual wedding, but change the pronouns, said Rabbi Daniel Atwood of his 2019 wedding to husband Judah Gavant. To do so, the couple worked with their officiating rabbi, Gabe Greenberg, drawing inspiration from a model created years earlier by Rabbi Stephen Greenberg, who came out as gay after being ordained in 1983 and in 2011 became the first Orthodox ordained rabbi known to have performed a same-sex weddings. Uh, a same-sex wedding. The two rabbis are not related. In, a, in place of a ketubah, Stephen Greenberg's ceremony consisted of a shtar Shutafut, a legal agreement that has historically been used for business partnerships. The idea to use such a partnership for a wedding was first proposed in 1999 by Rachel Adler, a reform feminist rabbi who felt the language of a typical ketubah was sexist. In recent years, many heterosexual couples have taken Adler's lead in trying to make their wedding ceremonies more egalitarian. Stephen Greenberg creates the document together with a couple to fit their relationship, and it is read out loud during the ceremony. In place of Kiddushin, which establishes monogamy and where the husband gives the wife a ring, Greenberg has both partners take vows to be exclusive to each other. In place of the traditional Sheva Brachot, the seven blessings, Greenberg has friends and family come up and give the couple seven blessings of their choice. Sandy and Liana Topnak had a similar vision for their 2018 wedding. We wanted something that felt on a gut level like the Orthodox weddings we had been to and felt traditional. We also didn't want to mess with halakha. We didn't want to pretend something was halakhic when it wasn't. That didn't feel authentic to us and we didn't want to feel like we were inventing something for the first time necessarily, Leanna Topnik said. Mulhern worked with the couple to craft a ceremony that used a dual vow mechanism, each woman promising to be monogamous with the other rather than the traditional blessings said as part of the Kiddushin. Afterwards, they did a modified Sheva Brachot ceremony. It really felt aesthetically like a traditional Jewish wedding, Mulhern said. How couples design their ceremonies represents attention about how change happens in the Orthodox world, whether tradition can be adapted or has to be rethought. I respect people who do an alternative, and everyone's entitled to do what they're comfortable with, but I view it as a step in the wrong direction because it's separate but equal, said Michael Greenberg, whose wedding ceremony to Barson stayed as close to tradition as possible. It's formally not acknowledging gay wedding as a wedding. They're saying it's something else. They're using the halachic mechanism of a partnership, shtar shtutafut, to give some sort of halachic validity or halachic mechanics to a gay wedding, but it's not a traditional Jewish wedding. Friedman, the officiating rabbi, said the Jewish legal validity of the wedding is only one piece of what matters. What we're saying was that the ceremony itself and the sense of commitment to each other and to God and to the people who were there was meaningful enough in and of itself, said Friedman, who has spoken in Orthodox Jewish settings about his experience as a gay man. 
Even if we left up to Hashem the question of what its ultimate halachic meaning was, we still wanted to do that anyway. Not all progressive Orthodox rabbis are on board with same-sex weddings, even as they believe that queer Jews should be included in Orthodox communities. LF, the professor at Turo College, says that while there has been increased acceptance of queer people in the modern Orthodox world, weddings may be a step too far for many. It goes beyond the boundaries of how the modern Orthodox negotiate halakha and modernity, he said. What it messages outwardly is the decision to conform halakha to modern sensibilities and modern orthodoxy has really eschewed that. It really has not tolerated that aggressive halakhic decision-making. Rabbi Gabriel Bellino's congregation, 6th Street Community Synagogue in downtown New York, welcomes queer members and has co-hosted a Shabbaton with Eshel, a group for Orthodox Jews who are LGBTQ. Still, Bellino cannot see a way for Orthodox Judaism to offer a pathway to same-sex weddings. I feel limited by the mechanisms of Jewish law, and so I have no mechanism to perform such a wedding, he said. So while the secular side of me and the progressive American in me is very much in favor of the legalization of same-sex unions, I don't perform them in a religious context. That means that some queer Jews who grew up Orthodox are looking to other denominations when they plan their weddings. A lot of Orthodox LGBTQ Jews are finding their friends to conduct ceremonies or rabbis from other denominations. There are very few Orthodox ordained rabbis who will do commitment ceremonies. Very, very few. And while it's nice to have a rabbi do it, I don't think it's necessary. And people have been doing it for decades without rabbis, said Miriam Kabakov, the executive director of Eshel. Kabakov herself has officiated two same-sex weddings for Orthodox couples and consulted on others. Others choose to leave Orthodoxy entirely, concluding that fighting to carve a space for themselves is not worth it when other denominations have made that space already. Gedalia Robinson had a conservative rabbi officiate his wedding to his husband Caleb this year. Though Robinson grew up deeply involved in the modern Orthodox world, his father is Rabbi Menachem Penner, dean of Yeshiva University's rabbinical school. He says he grew tired of having to constantly battle for acceptance. It was just very draining. It was trying to throw a rope across a ravine to create a bridge and just throwing a very, very heavy rope very far and often just being met with a person who just did not even extend their hands, he said. That fight has also pushed away some progressive Orthodox rabbis to lead the movement. There are just so few folks who are really willing to address that fundamental core problem in the Orthodox world that I decided, for me personally, I didn't need that denominational affiliation to ultimately address the question that I care most about, which is, how do we believe that God and Jewish law and values want someone who is born gay to live out their life said Rabbi Aaron Potek, who was ordained at Yeshivat Chovavei Torah and announced publicly last year that he no longer identified with orthodoxy. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you, as always, for listening.